You're listening to the audio from Tuesday Night Class at CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this teaching helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Okay, well, welcome tonight to another Water from a Deep Well, and this is going to be a lot of fun tonight. Actually, all throughout uh, these weeks, uh, we're going to be looking at some really interesting things. Um, One of the things we're going to be doing tonight, I'm just thinking, I need to turn this down. Yeah, there we go. Um, One of the things we're going to be doing uh, tonight is um, looking at the early church and how they created a sense of belonging. But I've mentioned to you before that much of this class is drawn from a number of sources. Many of you know I teach a lot of church history, and I'm always teaching church history. I teach at a college on church history, and I love history. My spare time, I'm reading history. Uh, But there is a really good book called Water from a Deep Well, and it's written by a guy named Gerald Sitzer. And um, this is a really good book. And this course is actually structured based on this book, Water from a Deep Well. And uh, just so you know, I brought some in and uh, two are gone already. We got three left and uh, they're a little pricey. They're $30. That's what I paid for them or the church paid $30. So if you would like one, you can get one. They're $30. You can just just put the money in the offering or, 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 or whatever. Um, and if we need more, I'll just order more. But I, we have three left and you can pick one up afterwards if you'd like, okay? So I just letting you know that that is uh, the basis on which uh, this course is being carried out is, is, is water from a deep well. Okay, so let's look at, um, Let's look at uh, what we're looking at tonight, the spirituality of early Christian community. Jesus writes these words. He says, I give you a new commandment that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. And by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. If you love, if you have love for one another. And then in Acts chapter two, we read this picture of community is remarkable picture. And we read in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, referring to the early church. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and of prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done, uh, being done uh, by the apostles. And all who believed were together and had things in common. <laughs> I can see I typed this very quickly. <laughs> And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So let's pray as we dive into this tonight. Lord Jesus, you're most welcome here. And it's easy in the evening after a day of work to just be going pretty fast. And so we pray that you would slow us down and give us ears to hear and eyes to see. 
that we would not be in a rush to get through this material, but you would take what you want and get it through us. So give us receptive hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so one of the things we touched on last week is we asked the question, why did the early church grow? And this is actually an important question, and it's not an easy question to answer because we know that the early church, and when I talk about the early church, I'm talking about the second and third century church, okay? So not so after Acts, after Revelation. So the second and third century, why did the early church grow? Well, we know that the church grew rapidly, it grew rapidly, um, but we'd be hard pressed to find a well-known evangelist from the early church from the second and third century. You can maybe think of one, like who's, who's known. Um, and so there's not, you know, there's no equivalent to Paul. And by the time, you know, the really next big evangelist you come across is probably Patrick. Well, Patrick's a, a lot later, right? And so, but the church grew quickly. We do know also that in the way it grew, it was unorganized. Uh, it wasn't the systematic growth. It was just, there's sporadic growth in different places. Uh, it was surprising because you have to ask the question, why would somebody want to join a movement that could get you into a lot of trouble, right? Why not just stay comfortably in the Roman Empire and worship the civic gods and everything would be good. So what would compel someone to want to join this sect that was often misunderstood, often maligned, this group of people called Christians? And, and so it, it's, and, and what is it about the Roman Empire that would push people away to join this movement? Well, part of the answer to this question lies in the fact with how the church formed community and created a sense of belonging. And the, the key to church growth, the key to church growth in the early church is surprisingly the willingness to think small, not to think big. We've talked about this before, but uh, the church... They weren't talking about, okay, what are some great evangelistic strategies that we can produce fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ so we can you know, get the people through this, right? And, and it, was, it was very much um, a one-on-one -on -one kind of thing. But the church grew. And it did it through just kind of an underground relational thing. And we're going to talk about that, what that looked like specifically. But we do know that as the church grew, and we touched on this last week, um, it got the attention of Roman leaders. And the Roman leaders weren't always pleased with this upstart group of, what are they called? Christians, Christians, right? We, uh, I introduced you last week to our, our man, uh, Pliny the Younger, and he's trying to impress Trajan the Older, no, the, the Roman emperor. And so he's trying to figure out how can I navigate, how can I figure out how to deal with this these Christians were causing problems. Remember, I told you that uh, meat sales were down. Meat sales were down. Nobody's buying meats to sacrifice to the local civic gods because of these Christians. And, and they were complaining to Pliny, saying, you know, you got to do something. Business is down. It's because of these Christians. Isn't that funny? I like, imagine, like, um, 
what's that hard rock what's the casino called the close the one close by is it called hard rock casino yeah. um can you imagine them complaining it's like well you know business is down because you know just nobody comes on sundays everybody's going to church and nobody wants to go to the casinos anymore can you imagine now, Pliny, his complaint was threefold. He says these Christians have become an economic nuisance, right? They're affecting business. Uh, they become a political nuisance or this, this club that, uh, you know, I'm not sure if we can trust these guys. We don't even know what's going on behind closed doors. And they're threatening our Roman way of doing things. And what bothered him, and part of the issue was the way these Christians did community. And so that's a, that's a big thing. So what Pliny does, and we talked about this last week, Pliny ends up arresting a lot of Christians. And he tortures them, and he finds out all sorts of things about these Christians. And I love uh, Pliny's conclusion, because at the end of the day, we talked about this last week, at the end of the day, when Pliny was, when all said and done, you know, he's trying to impress Emperor Trajan. He goes, just so you know, I've done a great job as governor. Uh, need to know that meat sales are back up. And... Uh, Everything's good. And so Pliny actually says, quote, he says, the contagion of this superstition, right? That was a, a term that they used for, for the Christians. It was a superstition. The contagion of the superstition has spread not only in the cities, but in villages and rural districts as well. Yet, it seems capable of being checked and set right. He says, don't worry, it's growing, but I, I know how to deal with these guys. Well, it turns out Pliny was wrong. <laughs> Um, he could not deal with them because the church, we know, grew rapidly, right? It grew rapidly over the second and third centuries because many pagans found the Christian message not only unique and compelling, it was answering great questions of life, but they're also drawn by how Christians live their lives. And so let me ask you this question. All right, I won't break into groups, it's okay. Uh, but I will ask you the question. You guys can write it on the chat if you have some answers or if you, you can unmute yourself if, if you have something to say, but we'll go back and forth. And so just so you know, whatever you guys say, I'll, I'm gonna repeat. So make sure you're, you're tight with what you say and, uh, and vice versa. But here's a question. In our day and age, what are the key factors other than the work of the Holy Spirit that might draw someone to Jesus? And why these factors? So what are the things in our day and age that will draw people to Jesus? Kindness and love. Now, why in our day and age is that, is that so important? Or is that something that's just through every, every time, time and age? Okay. So this desire to connect with one another is a basic human need. And this is something, and, and also, I mean, one of the things you could say about our particular time is that those, those avenues for people to gather together, especially during COVID was almost impossible, but these avenues for people to naturally gather together and rub shoulders and do life together are pretty few and far between. Like growing up in small town, Ontario, what did you have? Well, you had the Lions Club, you had Kiwanis, you had, there's also Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts. There's all sorts of ways for people to connect. There are bowling clubs, 
Uh, there's the Orangeman, <laughs> you know, the Orangeman parade every year. And there's, you know, there's all different ways that you could connect. Community hall dances. I grew up in a small town, right? But you don't have that today. And one of the few areas where people, where bodies actually gather together from different backgrounds and different ages is the church. It's one of the last things in the West. And a lot of sociologists have been pointing this out, that we are increasingly just living individual, atomized, separate lives. And so I think that love and kindness and that human connection, as you're saying, Don, is, is really important. Uh, seeing that things are very much wrong and God might have some answers. Yeah, kind of, Lori, uh, kind of coming to your wit's end, right? It's like something's wrong with the world. Maybe, maybe God can help, right? What else? Anything else? It's an important question. What is it that would draw somebody to Jesus today? Testimonies, yeah, hearing about how God affects us and how God has changed our life, yeah. I think um, in, in light of both those answers, too, also the, the idea of, um, of, of, care, of, of, of caring for those who are in need in the community. Yeah, seeing a need and, and helping out people who are in need. Um, Peter, the message of the good news. Uh, having a relationship with him, the love is reflected in these Christians, and that helps them connect. Um, they are willing to continue to love even in death and rejection. Yeah, so just the, the, the sacrifice that people make, the second coming of Jesus. Yeah, that, yeah. The lack? The lack of fear. So the lack of, of fear... Oh, the lack of fear displayed by Christians speaking to a world that's paralyzed with fear. Absolutely. I'm like, there's a lot of fear out there. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah. No, it's good. Well, these Christians, they live their life differently. And it gets people's attention. And it's, it's quite interesting. Um, searching for purpose, promise of eternal life. Those good, good. Um, there's a fellow named Aristides. He's an Athenian philosopher. And he lived in the second century. And this is what he has to say about Christians. It's quite interesting. He listed a number of characteristics that Christians, about Christians that set them apart. Okay, so this is the second century, somebody making the observation. Uh, he says these Christians, uh, they display fidelity, right, loyalty, truthfulness, contentment, respect for parents, love for neighbors, purity, patience in the face of persecution, and kindness to strangers which I, I wrote in my notes, I thought, hmm, I wonder what people say about Christians today. Like, what would be a list that uh, people would come up with today? Hmm. He said, uh, this guy, Aristides, he also says, you know, these Christians, they also treat slaves differently, which is interesting. Right? This is the second century. This was during the 100s. He says, quote, any male or female slaves or dependents whom individuals among them may have, they persuade to become Christians. So they said, if anybody has a slave, they persuade them to become Christians because of the love they feel towards them. And if they do become Christians, they are brothers to them without discrimination. Now, that is an interesting observation, just historically, that he's pointing out that these Christians, if they had slaves, they led them to Christ, and then they called them brothers in Christ. 
which you have to realize in the Greco-Roman mindset, what is a slave? Is a thing. A slave is a thing. He's a machine. He's not human. He's subhuman. Now, and the seeds for this is within the Gospels and within Paul's letters. Um, so you lead them to Christ, and now this 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 non-person is now not just a person, but he's your brother. Wow, that becomes the seeds for abolition because it, it, there is an abolitionist movement that takes place in in the three hundreds. Um, where slavery of, in, in the West, at least in, yeah, in, in, in the, the Western side of things, um, disappears for a long time until I think around the 1400s, 13 or 1400s. Um, same with the poor. This is what he says. He says, if anyone among them comes in want, they, themse they themselves have nothing to spare. <laughs> they said, if somebody comes to them and is hungry, this is what these Christians do. They fast for a few days, and the food that they save by fasting, they give to the poor. Right? So this is a guy who's making these observations in, this, in the second century about this strange new group called Christians. Interesting. So we'll come back to that in a little bit. Now, what I want you to do is going to be kind of fun. I'm going to give you a, a project, okay? Now, Online, you guys online, do you all have the notes? Thumbs up? Yeah. Okay, Roland, you got to look for the notes. They're online. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're, on, they're on the website, so you, you should be able to get them. But everybody else, mostly you have the notes? Okay, and you guys have the notes, right? Okay, now look in your notes. The next part we're going to look at, and we've looked, if you've taken my class before, you've probably read this letter before. But this, I think, is one of the most remarkable letters of antiquity and it's a description of christians it's a description of christians and um and it's a description of christians written to a person named diogenes and they're trying to present a picture saying hey, look this is what christians are actually like and it's written second century probably late second century so the late 100s which again is really early. And he's describing what Christians are like. So what I want you to do is I want you to read through it. Um, you could do it in, in a group or just keep separate, spaced out. It's up to you. I leave it. You guys are all spaced out anyhow, so it doesn't matter. Um, so I want you to read through it. And then I want you to write down or yeah, just jot down or underline what captures your attention about the way Christians are described. Okay? So I'm going to give you about uh, three or four minutes to do that. And so if you're on your own, just read it and just underline what captures your attention. Okay. If you guys want to talk among yourselves, you can as well. So I'm going to just pause the recording while you guys do this. Okay. So I don't know if that's enough time to read through it. I mean, I, let me just, uh, I'll, I'll say it really quickly and then yeah, you just, just, Keep in mind what, what uh, captures your attention. How many, just curious, how many of you have, have read this letter before? I know some of you have. Yeah, Don, you have. Yeah, Denise. Yeah, of course, yeah. Anybody else read it before? Anybody online have read this, have come across this before? No, eh? Wow. It's really interesting. Okay, so those Christians, this is the letter. He says, 
For Christians cannot be distinguished from the rest of the human race by country, language, or customs. They do not live in cities of their own. They do not use a peculiar form of speech. They do not follow an eccentric manner of life. This doctrine of theirs is not being discovered by ingenuity or deep thought or inquisitive men, nor do they put forward merely human teaching as some people do. Yet, although they live in Greek and barbarian cities alike, as each man's lot has been cast, and follow the customs of the country and clothing and food and other matters of daily living, at the same time, they give proof of the remarkable and admittedly extraordinary constitution of their own commonwealth. They live their own, in their own countries, but only as aliens. They have a share in everything as citizens and endure everything as foreigners. Every foreign land is their fatherland, and yet for them, every fatherland is a foreign land. They marry, like everyone else, and they beget children, but they do not cast out their offspring. They share their board with each other, but not their marriage bed. It is true that they are in the flesh, but do not live according to, to the flesh. They busy themselves on the earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. They obey their established laws, and, but in their own lives, they go far beyond what the laws require. They love all men, and by all men are persecuted. They are unknown and still are condemned. They are put to death, and yet they are brought to life. They are poor, and yet they make many rich. They are completely destitute, and yet enjoy complete abundance. They are dishonored, and in their very dishonored are glorified. They are defamed and are vindicated. They are reviled, and yet they bless. When they are affronted, they still pay due respect. When they do good, they are punished as evildoers. Undergoing punishment, they rejoice because they are brought to life. They're treated by the Jews as foreigners and enemies and are hunted down by Greeks. All the time, those who hate them find it impossible to justify their enmity. To put it simply, what the soul is in the body, Christians are in the world. The soul is dispersed through all the members of the body. Christians are dispersed, scattered all through the cities of the world. The soul dwells in the body, but does not belong to the body. And Christians dwell in the world, but do not belong to the world. Okay, so what... Uh, what stands out? Isn't that a remarkable letter and a remarkable description of Christians? It's powerful. What stands out? And try to mirror read. Try, try to think, oh, I wonder why he said that. Or I wonder why he brought that particular point up. What are some things that stood out? Foreigners, aliens, citizens in heaven. Okay, yeah. Yet... Yet we live in the cities. We live according to your laws. We, are, we don't wear weird clothes. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? He's, he's really walking that tension of, hey, we are in the world, and yet we, we don't belong here. It's a really interesting description of that in the world, but not of the world um, tension. What else? Oh, I like that. The soul dwells in the body, but does not belong to the body. And Christians dwell in the world, but do not belong to the world. Yeah, again, that tension. Yeah. What else? If you're reading this, what do you think? Do you think he's trying to make a point or do you think he's trying to make a case for something? Yeah, they cannot be distinguished. They just, they're, they're part of this world and they speak the language, they wear the clothes, they're, you know, they're just, 
they're among us, right? <laughs> These Christians. It's interesting, yeah. So they, they're not wearing, you know, special T-shirts, you know, with with a with a cross on it, or you know, or a fish or something. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. So that 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 multicultural, multi-ethnic side of Christian of, of the early church. Yeah, it's it's it was unique then. In fact, that's what got Christians into a lot of trouble because they're hanging around like, well, one of the big things that got Christians into trouble is that women were involved. I mean, how legitimate of a movement could it be if women were involved in it, especially in leadership? That was an issue, right? Um, now, it's interesting. I was going to mention this later on, but I, I find this fascinating. But um, one of the one of the. Um, telling points of whether or not a movement in history is a movement of God. Do you know one of the telling characteristics is? Like, how can you tell whether or not a revival or movement is actually from God? And I think one of the telling characteristics is this, is that it involves people from all different walks of life, socioeconomic and ethnic, ethnically being moved together. And I've said this before, like if I started a movement of 55-year-old guys from Ontario that like to listen to Rush, I don't know if that would be a revival as much of a club, right? But whenever you see a movement, uh, and I learned this when I was studying about revival, whenever you see a, a movement where it's, you know, these people, they don't seem to really belong to each other, and yet they're all worshiping together. That's what I think the Azusa Street Revival and 1906 was so important because it's like you had 1906, you have blacks and whites, men and women, different classes all together worshiping. I think that that really stood out. Yeah. But you can also read in this letter, there's some, some, um, there's some pushback. He says like, unlike, uh, unlike a lot of the world, you know, we, we, we get married, we do have children, but we don't throw out our babies. You see that? Like it is a little bit of a dig, right? It's like, yeah, yeah, but we don't throw them out, just so you know. Um, and they say, oh, and the other thing that's kind of interesting in light of what I think we mentioned that uh, last week, I think they talked about food. Did they say something about food? Um, yeah, um, in, in verse four, they talk about uh, our customs, our clothing and food and other matters of daily living. Um, and follow the customs of the country and food. I thought there was, there was something in particular about food. Um, anyhow, it's, it's, it's referenced because there is a question that these Christians, of the food that they're eating, you know, that there's some weird stuff going on. And, and, and maybe it's a different document where they, they talk about uh, it's, it's ordinary food. I like in verse seven, it says, they share their board with each other, like food but not their marriage bed, which again is a little shot against uh, the Roman society. It's like, we don't, we don't sleep around. It's also a pushback because some people are saying, well, these Christians, I heard brother, sister, holy kiss, incest, and they're just sleeping around. That's what's going on in these gatherings. And they're like, no, we don't share our marriage bed. We, you know, we're with just husband and wife. Anyhow, I think it's a remarkable document. Um, about describing the church. Now, 
here's the challenge though for us. And I want to, and I, I, I sometimes can fall into this. When we're looking at the second and third century and what's going on, that's not the perfect church. And sometimes we can look at an, a period in time and say, oh, look how awesome it was. Everything was perfect. Well, no, not everything was perfect. Even in the New Testament, if you read 1 Corinthians, it's not a perfect church, right? Wherever, unfortunately, wherever people are involved, it gets messy, right? Um, and so there's no golden age of Christian community, right? I think we can learn something from this period, but let's not idealize it. It's, it's messy. Uh, Gerald Sisser puts it this way. The church has always faced trouble and always will. Worldliness, cowardice, acrimony, heresy, stupidity have dogged the Christian community since Paul first put pen to paper, exhorting believers in Corinth to discipline errant members, repair divisions, get their theology straight, repent of arrogance, right? But there is something that was about this early community that was attractive to pagans. And people were drawn to this community. Um, and, and one of the emperors got really mad about this. We talked about this. Julian, he, he was really mad. He says, look, these, he says, these impious Galileans, these Christians, support not only their own poor, but our poor. He's like, these guys, they're not just helping their own people out. They're actually helping the pagans out. We should be doing better. Like Julian was, he's, he, was, uh, he was the first pagan convert. First person to convert to paganism. Because he, he grew up as a Christian and he rejected his faith and embraced paganism and tried to bring paganism back into the Roman Empire. But he got frustrated. He's like, these Christians, not only do they take care of their own poor, they take care of our poor as well. We need to do better. But paganism never really stepped up its game. Okay, so let's look at uh, how did the early church movement create a sense of belonging? But before we do so, any, any questions, comments? These are so quiet. And you guys are muted, so you're quiet. <laughs> you guys... Yeah, we don't know. We don't know. Yeah. And it's an anonymous letter to Diogenes. Um, uh, I don't know. I don't know who, who, who it is. But um, it must have been somebody in a position of power or in the aristocracy. And it must have been someone... Um, who didn't know very much about Christians and maybe had misunderstandings because the whole letter is correcting underlying the whole letter is a correction of misunderstandings. So it could have been somebody in power who had some authority and had a misunderstanding about Christianity and possibly was responding to that. And, and this letter is like, look, let me tell you exactly what Christians are, are actually like. That's my guess of what's going on. Oh, the author was definitely a Christian, and it was, and it did have an apologetic feel to it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Don. Oh. oh, okay, so Don just asked a very good question. 
if people looked at us today, would they see us as not really fitting into this world or would they see us as, oh, way too comfortable in this world? I'm paraphrasing, <laughs> but that's, that's, that's the question, right? Um, do we live and how we live our lives, do we display that similar tension of being in the world and not of the world? Or are we way too comfortable here in the world? Or are we so disconnected from the world and, and, and you know, of no earthly good, right? Um, I would say it's probably we're a little too comfortable. What do you guys think online? Any comments? <laughs> Thumbs up, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like uh, a lot are too comfortable in the world. Yeah, Michelle, that's good. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's an inch. So um, Denise asked the question, uh, made the point about uh, in the early church up until about the fourth century, you don't see a lot of evangelism. In fact, you don't see a lot of evangelistic programs. What what you do see. Uh, are, is, is two things. You see um, Christians being very willing to tell other people about Jesus. Um, and we'll talk about the, 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 the nature of the city um, and how, how tight it was, how, how congested it was. So Christians were very busy in the marketplace sharing about Jesus. But you don't have a lot of evangelistic strategies. In the early church, in the first four centuries, there are zero treatises on evangelism, how to reach your pagan neighbor, zero. But there are three treatises on the importance of patience. Isn't that interesting? That we need to be patient, we need to be patient, we need to share, we need to not get overwhelmed, we need to be patient. So it's interesting, patience was a big deal. Uh, but evangelism was just done on a personal level rather than some kind of system. It's only, again, by the time you get to Patrick, uh, it, it changes. But, um, it, yeah, it, it's just kind of done on a ground level, rubbing shoulders with your neighbors at the grocery store. Right? And, They're offering hope. Yeah, they're. Yeah, can I help you? Hi. You water from a deep well. Yeah, come on in. Yeah, and there's some notes uh, just on the desk if you want, and then sit wherever you like. Welcome. Yeah, that's okay. Yeah, no problem. Okay. Um, there's little mass evangelism, but in uh, recorded in Acts, only what recorded in Acts, what Peter did, but all know what the gospel is and share yeah yeah it's it's different within the what we see in the, in the book of acts so yeah it's a little bit different um what i want to do is just share a little bit about um why you know how did the early christian movement create a sense of belonging well first off it was a um it was a welcoming community you can sit wherever you like yeah welcome um the early church took seriously um, Paul's admonition that in Christ there's neither Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. 
And so the early church overcame divisions of gender, uh, ethnicity, class, um, which, and we have to realize, because in Roman society, society was quite stratified. It was quite hierarchical. Um, so, so you had, um, you know, certain people, you had the philosophers at the top, and you had the merchants, and then you had, beyond then, you had, you know, um, you know, you just had different, and then lower down, you had women, and then below them, you had slaves, and at the very bottom, you'd have barbarians, people who are outside the Roman Empire. But it was very structured, and so even when you read somebody like Socrates, uh, or you don't read, but you hear what Socrates has to say, um, the famous line that Socrates said was, know yourself, and, and everybody thinks, yes, yeah, Socrates says, know yourself. And what he means by that is you need to look inside and discover who you truly are. No, no, that's not what Socrates is saying. When he's saying know yourself, he's like, know your place. Know your place within the structure. And here you have these Christians come along and that structure just gets thrown up in the air. Because you got slaves, you got women leading, you got slaves leading, you got, it's, and it's, it's, it's a different community. And they live their lives out in the marketplace. And, they, and here's the thing. If you read about the early Christians is they do try to keep a low profile. They do not. They do not post a lot on Facebook. They do not tweet. There's just a lot of conversation, one-on-one -on -one conversation, through natural relationships. And and it's because of this, and also because as these Christians, and there's there's such a a wide range of backgrounds it drove it drove the romans crazy and, and one of the guys i've quoted before and he's, he's he's quite funny in some ways um and and quite witty and that is celsus uh, a roman philosopher and celsus is just he hates these christians and he's and he's quite witty um but he says this he says um he's just he's so upset that you know that that Slaves and women are part of this movement. He's like, how credible could this movement be if you have women and slaves as part of it? And he says, quote, in private houses, also we see wool workers, cobblers, laundry workers, laundry workers, and the most bucolic yokels <laughs> who would not dare to say anything at all in front of their elders and more intelligent masters. He goes, you got these, these yahoos who are in leadership in this, stupid movement called Christianity and there's women, there's slaves. And it's just like, this is just cuckoo bananas. Why would anybody want to join this group? And so Celsus is just, he goes to town. I say, I've said this before. He's, he was a Christopher Hitchens of the second century. He was very ruthless, but, but kind of funny too, when I read some of his stuff. Um, and so he's one of the guys that the, the church has to respond to, right? It drove them crazy that women, women would, you know, be attracted in the, uh, to this movement and even be in leadership. And here's the thing. Why would women be so drawn to Christianity? Because from the earliest record, it looks as if the majority of the church, or a high percentage of the church were women. Why do you think women would be drawn to Christianity? What's that? 
Yeah, yeah, because in the Greek, in the Greco-Roman mindset, women are deformed men, right? According to Aristotle, women are deformed men, right? So here you have women, they achieve a, a higher status than they would otherwise attain. Here's the other issue is that if a woman, when would a girl be married off in the Greco-Roman world? We talked about this. How old do you think a girl would be when she was married off? 12, yeah, 12. Chris, the Christian community, uh, girls usually married 16 or 17, which is when a lot of, you know, um, you know, you were considered an adult at, at, at that age. Um, yeah, so Laura, you'd be like married for like four, four years, right? Already, <laughs> yeah. Um, the other thing uh, for women is that, it was expected. You have to realize in the Roman Empire, women were so looked down upon that there was a huge disparity between in the population between male and female. You know that? About 140 to 100 ratio, which is, I don't know what China is. China's it's bad, but it wasn't that bad. In the Roman Empire, most families would have many sons and one daughter. And if you had a second daughter, you, it was legal for you to expose her. There would be a place in town, you just leave, leave the baby out to die. You could not do that with a male unless he was deformed. But a female, it was legal to just discard her. So yeah, I can see why Christianity, which says in Christ there's neither male nor female, might be attractive. Um, the other thing is that uh, Christianity said, you know, Women were to be uh, celibate until married, but same, same with you guys, same with the men. <laughs> she wasn't the case in the Greco-Roman world. Um, a Christian women could remain single and not lose their status in the church. When they did marry, um, the church uh, would often support the married couple because the church saw marriage as being something that's given by God and valuable. Right? And so it always drives me crazy when I hear, you know, people talking about Christianity and, and, and discrimination against women. But, I mean, there's no movement in the history of the world that has done more to elevate the position of women than Christianity. There's no, no movement. Um, families. Families. Yeah, and they, and they care for widows. That's good, Peter. Yeah, we'll talk about that in, in a moment. Um, Family life was important. Couples were encouraged to pray together, fast together, instruct, support, exhort each other. That's what Tertullian said. And share each other's tribulations, persecutions, and revival. The church was committed to helping widows, right? And children. And so the church spoke against sexual abuse uh, against, against children. And they would encourage children to be cared for. I was reading today, I was reading all this stuff from the early church fathers and, you know, just laying out um, really strong language against any abuse towards children. It's, it's quite powerful. Clement of Alexandria uh, in, in 150 AD, um, he lived between in the late uh, second century, he says, <laughs> it's interesting, he says, although keeping parrots and curlews, curlews, I guess is a bird of some kind, I don't know, um, Keeping birds, the pagans do not, they'll keep birds, but they do not adopt the orphan child. Rather, they expose children who are born at home. 
and yet they take up the young of birds. So they prefer irrational creatures to rational ones. They're saying like these pagans, they, they look after birds, they look after baby birds, but their own human babies, they'll leave out on the street to die. Well, exactly. We will, we will, we will give a river human rights and yet allow late-term abortion. Yeah, and the early church was pretty, they were pretty, uh, I mean, because of abortion was, I mean, that's a whole nother topic that we can, we can look at, but abortion was quite common in the Roman world, and it's quite dangerous towards women, because a lot of times they would take uh, medicine in order to abort, or there'd be actual procedures to abort, and um, they're both deadly to women, uh, very deadly to, to, towards women. And the church, right from the beginning, um, uh, along with uh, in, in Judaism as well, just spoke very strongly against abortion. Yeah, and 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 it's and it's it's consistent. Like it's not like some people say, oh, it's it's okay, or it's 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 always seen in a negative way. Yeah, exactly. It's a shot against the Roman Empire because they. I mean, I. I don't know if you've seen, I, I, I showed this when I taught a class a couple of years ago, but there's this love letter from this military guy to his wife back home. And it's a beautiful love letter. He's like, you know, I know I'm not home and I know you miss me and I know you're pregnant. You're going to have a baby and our baby and you need to know I'm thinking about you. Uh, I've sent some money home to look after you. Um, you know, if you have the baby, um, just so you know, if it's a boy, uh, that's great. If it's a girl, just discard it. Um, and you need to know, I really miss you. I'll be home soon. And there's just this little line. And if it's a girl, discard it. As if it was just like, whatever. And so, if you know, to, to be a woman, you know, and you think about one of the things that Christians did is that they would go to these places in the cities where the girls would be discarded, baby girls, and they would take up the baby girls and raise them and look after them. And they would do that before anybody else got hold of them because other people would get hold of them, raise them up, and they'd become prostitutes, whatever the baby happened to be. But most of the babies just died. And uh, I've shared before, but I remember living in China and going to a hospital to see my friend whose his wife had a baby and Next to us, there was a, a peasant family in China, the uh, one-child policy, and, and they had a baby girl, and it was freezing cold in the hospital room because there's no heating. And the baby was just lying there, no, not a blanket on, on her. And I said, what's going on? And my friend said, yeah, they just want her to die. Anyhow, we can keep talking about this. It's, it's, but, I mean, this is why a, a lot of women um, wanted to... Um, Join this movement because you have dignity and value, right? There's a high standard of, uh, of membership. Uh, belonging to a church meant that you were in a close community that cared for one another and did life together. And they also said how we live our life will, you know, will be judged in the end. Uh, so how we live matters. And they also had an early view of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I mean, this is not an add-on. This is not a doctrine that shows up in the fourth century. You find the Trinity all throughout the pages of the New Testament, but also the, 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 the picture and the, 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 uh, the doctrine of the Trinity really early in the church. 
And when they saw God as revealing himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God who is in his very nature love, they said, this is a great picture for Christian community. Uh, God in his very nature is love. And so we, in our very nature, in our community, need to express this kind of love. And I think as, as Christians were showing love, that drew people to, to the church, as, as you were saying, Don. Yeah. The second thing is that um, it offered stability in an unstable world. And, and we've, we've, I keep saying we've talked about this before because, you know, it's just taught on history <laughs> all the time. But I've described to you the life in a Roman city. We have this, sometimes this idyllic view of a Roman city and these, these wide streets and people wearing togas and saying, greetings, let's go to the bath or whatever, you know, as if it's this great world that, uh, you know, the Roman world and there's the aqueduct and there's the, the public baths and there's, a, you know, it's a wonderful place. It wasn't. It was very, very crowded. The widest street, these famous streets were probably like 10 feet wide, the really big ones, right? So they're not, most of it was just very crammed. In fact, we know that we know about the density in some of these cities. We know that um, in Corinth had, um, or Antioch had about 195 people per acre. That's pretty crowded. Corinth, 137, Rome had three, Rome had 300 people per acre. And to give you an idea, Manhattan has 100. Today, Manhattan has 100. And that's with skyscrapers and without animals living in your room, right? What's that? Uh, yeah, Beijing would probably be. Well, I know Bombay, which would be more crowded than Beijing, I would think. Um, Bombay has 183 per acre. But Rome still has 300. Um, and so, I mean, these are crowded, crowded places. And the sanitation, I mean, the sanitation was horrible, right? Drinking water. I mean, the, the reason why, the, one of the reasons why the Roman Empire, they had a population issue. The population was constantly falling. And so they constantly had to conquer other lands in order to bring in more slaves because the population was falling. One of the reasons was one, not enough women. Uh, that's the problem. Two, the amount of lead. I think that was another issue. In, in, uh, so a lot of lead poisoning. But the third reason was, um, was just your lifespan in, in the city. You didn't last long. If you're drinking the water, you'd often get sick. And so I think, the, I think the life expectancy in a city was about 30 years old. 30 years old in, in a Roman city. And so the population was always, always dropping and they were always struggling to, to bring in workers. Um, these glorious Roman cities were actually pest holes of disease and rashes and lost limbs and blindness. Uh, there's a lot of danger whenever you have a population that's constantly, you have newcomers coming. Whenever you have a neighborhood where there's a constant influx of newcomers, that neighborhood will become more dangerous. It's just a sociological fact that the more turnover in a neighborhood, the more like the, the higher the crime will be. And so 
I like Rodney Stark. He says, any accurate portrait of Antioch in New Testament times must depict a city filled with misery, danger, fear, despair, and hatred. Um, it's, it's, it's not a great... And so what, what does Christian community do? Well, it offered some stability in a very unstable world. Now, let's just time out there for a second. What, I mean, if you're to describe our world today, how does it feel? Unstable. Yeah, thanks, Michelle. Yeah. I mean, very unstable. I mean, Facebook went down for five hours. I mean, it's crazy. No. I mean, but one of the characters, I mean, ever since, especially since COVID, I mean, just we're, the sense of feeling off balance and unstable. And one of the things that Christianity did is it just brought this deep stability in a world where everything seemed to be falling apart. And I think that's something that we can, we can proclaim to a world, as you were saying, Denise, that is you know, convulsed with fear, right? I think it's, it's, it's so important. Um, you have to realize also in, in the early church, like in these cities, think how cramped these cities are. Most people lived in these tenement buildings. They were at most four stories high and were constantly falling down. And so to live on the lower floor wasn't, well, the lower floor was good because you could try to get out in time. But if you're not out in time, it's not good to have three floors of rubble falling you. Um, the other thing, there's a lot of fires because there's chimneys have not been invented yet. So there's a lot of fires. Antioch, I think, burned down three or four times. But what thing you would have is that, so Susan, if, if, if I was sitting in my, in my one-room apartment, I'd be like talking about Jesus to my wife. You know, Jesus is the truth, the life, and the way. And, and maybe I'd have normally, I'd have a few people there and we'd be talking about Jesus. We had a little small house church, right? Well, you're like three feet away in your tenement building, in your window. And, you're, and there's no windows. It's not like, you know, glass has me. There's no glass or anything. There's just open space. And so you're going to be like, you're going to be listening. That's how close we are. Like we can could, we could reach out and talk. we can shake hands. That's how close the buildings are to each other. And so a lot of people are listening to these churches as they're meeting in these, in these tenement rooms. And, uh, and then sometimes they would grow so much they would move uh, into these homes, which is an indication that some of the early church leaders were, were quite well off too, because you had to have money in order to have a, an actual house. Anyhow, it's quite interesting. Um, the other thing is the church... Yeah, so I think we need to think about this because we need to think about what are the challenges in, in our cities? What are the opportunities in our cities? Uh, what would the church, what does the church offer today to our cities, given the nature of our cities? So what does the church have to offer to Coquitlam? What are we uniquely able to offer to people in Coquitlam? A safe environment, yeah. Yeah, good. Hope, yeah. Which is in short supply in our world today. Hope, absolutely. 
Truth, yeah, truth. Unity. Say that again. Right. So you can you can be yourself and be loved as yourself, right? You can be authentic. You can be this is who I am. Yeah. Yeah. The, 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 so Carlin's talking about the, the just that we can we can share with, with people who maybe are struggling with with all sorts of issues to say that, you know, whatever your issue, uh, you need to know that one who created you also loves you and he died for you. Yeah. Yeah. Love, love in our world is always conditional and this unconditional love that God gives us through Jesus. Yeah. Very good. Yeah, that picture of love, the of, of Christian love, absolutely. That's good. Yeah, and when uh, Peter, uh, how Jesus can help them when when we call upon them, you know, point people to the reality of Jesus. Um, the other thing, and we touched on this last week, so I'm not going to spend too much time on it, is the way the church cared for people during crises. Um, you know, so you had those two plagues, and uh, the plague of Galen or Galen in 165 A.D. and the second one about 250 A.D. Um, and how Christians, rather than running to the hills, they stayed around and they actually um, offered care. Um, one guy, a, a bishop of Alexandria, said, uh, describes in uh, 264, he talks about what the plague was like. He says, for they were infected by others by, with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. Many, in nursing and curing others, transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. So they got sick and they ended up dying, turning the common formula that is normally an empty courtesy into a reality. And then um, I think a sister puts it this way. He says, basic nursing care, sips of broth, cold rags on the forehead, tender back rubs, a change of bedding, visits from loving friends, strengthen the sick and help at least some of them overcome the disease. And, and just those little things actually increase the chances of you recovering from a plague by 30%. And so a lot of people came to faith in terms of how Christians treated uh, the sick during an emergency. You know, and I think that, okay, this is just an aside, but I think one of the things during COVID, when COVID hit, do you remember when COVID hit all those years ago, <laughs> that uh, late March 2020? Um, a lot of churches panicked. A lot of churches panicked. Um, a lot of churches and were thrown off. And, you know, and I'll throw myself, I was thrown off. I was, you know, I was going, oh, what's going on? Because, uh, you know, this shouldn't last more than a few weeks, but it kept lasting. And then when I saw we were playing bocce ball with, with my kids at the park and the police came on the park and ordered everybody off out of the park. And I'm like, what is going on in our world? And I remember being kind of thrown off. But then I always remember um, 
one of the things that um, Pastor Diane did um, in, in the area of missions is she saw this as an opportunity to say, all right, there's going to be a lot of people out of work without food who are in need. So let's get these hampers going. And uh, our church uh, ended up giving out you know, hundreds and hundreds of hampers to people in the, in the community. And not just hampers, hampers that will give them a week's full of, grocery, of groceries. And I think it was, it was a beautiful picture of the church in action. Um, and during that whole period, you know, giving never really dipped. Uh, people were still committing. People were giving in order to for us to turn around and, and give and, and to help people within the community. And I thought about this story of, of the church in the second century and then in the third century and how they responded in crises. And I, I was quite proud. You know, I was quite proud of, uh, of Diane and the missions team and, and the way they responded. And I think God has, has blessed our church. Um, because he saw the faithfulness of, um, of, of some of the, the leaders. You know, I think, of, again, of Diane and, and those who work with Mary Robertson as well. And, uh, yeah, they, they really stepped up their game, and I think, I think that was quite powerful. Anyhow, that's just an aside, but it was, it was the way they responded in, in, in a crisis. And Christian community provided a high degree of social stability. Uh, people were afraid. Um, but the Christians, I mean, the idea of a welfare state comes out of, it's a Christian concept, right? I mean, you have, it's interesting, 250 AD, when you had the second plague, the church in Rome had 1,500 widows and distressed persons under its care. They cared for 1,500 persons. In Constantinople, there were 3,000 widows receiving assistance by the year 400. And Peter Brown, who's a major historian of this period, says the appeal of Christianity still lay in its radical sense of community. It absorbed people because, of the because the individual could drop from the wide and personal world into a miniature community whose demands and relations were explicit. And it, it, it would, people would be drawn out of the loneliness and the anonymity of this wide world and be brought into a community where you are known, right? And that's quite powerful. It was a caring community. Um, Christians lived among non-Christians, would often, you know, um, show care to people who are in need. One guy put it this way, he's talking about Christians. He says, a good man, this Caius Seus, only that he's a Christian. He said, he's a good man. The only issue is that he's a Christian, apparently. But, you know, often what would happen is if uh, when a person invited you over to pray for a sick person next door. And so there's a lot of a lot of this. There's no evangelistic strategy. There's just casual contact. And it was a giving community. Now, it's interesting when you read about this, because the early church, um, they just gave. And so there's this document called the Didache. Has anybody ever heard of this? Yeah. You guys heard of the Didache? Yeah, it's um, it's a document describing the church that dates from as early as maybe the 90s or the 100s AD. So it's really it's just after Revelation, probably. It's one of the earliest Christian documents, and it describes life in the in the in the early church. And one of the things it says this: it says, "Do not be one who holds his hand out to take." 
but shuts it when it comes to giving. If your labor has brought you earnings, pay a ransom for your sins. Do not hesitate to give and do not give with bad grace. Do not turn your back on the needy, but share everything with your brother and call nothing your own. For what you have is eternal in common. How much more should you have what is transient? And so the idea of this is like all that we have, all that we have, we can't take with us. Uh, you cannot bring this home. Ambrose of Milan has this. I don't think I have this in your notes. Oh, yeah, the guy named, uh, or in this uh, document, uh, this early church writing called uh, the, the Shepherd of Hermes, Hermes, we hear this question. Why would a pilgrim plant deep roots in a foreign land as though she had already reached her destination? For what is a man's money if not the provision for his journey? And he says, you know, we are... Um, we're heading towards heaven. So why would we want to hold on to all of our money? We're pilgrims. And so we need to give. And so they said, you need to give and be a community that constantly gives because you know what, when we die, we can't bring it with us, right? You can, you can't put it into your coffin. <laughs> and so you give it away. Now the church would also say this, look, don't you be taking money if you don't need it. So as equally says, you need to give, but if you're on the receiving end, you make sure that you actually need it because if you don't need it, you're stealing. And they said to a rich person, if you don't give, you're stealing. Either way, you're stealing, right? So you need to give out of what you have. And if you have need, you take, but if you have, then you can turn around and give as well. It was the church is very strong on that in the, in the early church. The other thing is the early church was a, a learning community. It was my favorite. <laughs> um, and so they, they, they taught the scriptures. We have uh, early church uh, examples of, uh, of um, what a church service looked like. Have you guys ever read that before or come across that? Picture of an early church service. They talked about singing hymns, collecting money and giving to the poor, having communion. And if, and if you... If you were sick, then again, if you're a deacon, I would say, I need you to take the bread and the wine to so-and-so's place and administer communion. And we'll also take money and we'll give to the poor, see whoever has need. You would worship and you'd also, you would read the prophets, which is reference to the Old Testament, the prophets, and it was called the memoirs of the apostles which is basically what we have to say is a, is a New Testament. And it would be led by a guy who was called the president. <laughs> We're not sure if we think maybe he's a pastor or something. I don't know. Um, but it was a, that's what a church service looked like. And often um, you would have, you invite people in and you would have baptism. And baptism is really interesting. For a person to be baptized uh, you had to get ready. So if you wanted to join the community and, and, and to take communion, you'd have to go through the process of baptism. And you know what that would look like? It's quite, quite interesting. First off, if you want to be baptized, um, you needed to have someone vouch for you. So Bruce, you just can show up and say, hey, I've heard about you Christians, kind of interested in joining your church. And so what do I need to do? Is there a Next step class that I can take, you know? No, no. Ray, you would have to say, look, this is my friend Bruce. I know him. 
through my guild. We work together. I've been telling him about Jesus. He's curious. I can vouch for him. He's not a spy. He's not here to mess things up. I can vouch for him. Okay? And we're like, all right, all right. So, Bruce, you come in, and you can take part in a lot of the church. But the moment we do communion, sorry, you have to leave. Because this is only, this is members only kind of thing. So you'd have to leave. But you would also be prepared for baptism. And preparation for baptism would take, how long do you think? Take a guess. How long would your, your, your baptism preparation class take? Three Two months, minutes. says David. What's that, Natalia? Two minutes. <laughs> Two minutes, yeah. <laughs> Just do it online, fill in a form, yeah. Um, what's that? Three years is right. Three years. Yeah, three years. We talked about that, yeah. Three years. And then, Bruce, you're finally ready. And you get introduced to the community, so you're about to be baptized. But again, you don't say a word. Ray has to say, look, okay, I've been walking with Bruce for these last three years. This is what I've seen. I think it's doing, he's doing pretty good. Um, I vouch for him. He's ready to be baptized. So I said, okay, so I'm the pastor. Bruce, stand here in front of everyone. Sorry, naked. Uh, that's, that was the rule back then. It was the olden days, right? Um, and then I would ask you some questions. Do you believe that uh, God the Father, creator of heaven and earth? You would say, Pisteo, I believe, I have faith. Do you believe in Jesus Christ, his only son? You know, born of the, uh, born of the uh, conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, uh, died and was buried and was raised to new life. Do you believe that? Pisteo, do you believe in the Holy Spirit and the communion of saints, the church? Pisteo. And I baptize you three times after each pisteo. And then you'd be robed and then you take communion. That's, uh, that's one picture of the early church. Now, again, these are not ideal times. I prefer to be clothed when I was being baptized. Um, and three years seems like a long time. Yeah. Okay, okay, hang on, hang on, because I want to hear this. That's not a biblical uh, depiction. All right, what do you mean by that? <laughs> oh, three years. Oh, because of the life of Jesus. I wonder if that's why. I think there's other reasons why it was it was three years, but maybe you're right. Um, but the argument I would hear is that, you know, in the Bible, how long did it take Philip to baptize the Ethiopian eunuch? Right away. Right away. You don't have to wait three years, right? But what was the Ethiopian eunuch doing when Philip found him? What was he doing? He was reading. What was he reading? The book of Isaiah. Say, I'm having a hard time understanding about the suffering servant. Okay, so he's reading Isaiah. Here you have a situation where you have people who had just been worshiping Zeus or have been part of a, the cult of Mithras who have never even heard of Jesus, who are steeped in paganism. So it's not there. They've never heard of Isaiah. They've never read scripture. And so that's why the church say, we're not so sure. You need to learn. One, you need to unlearn. And two, you need to learn. 
And so that's why I always, you know, the, the, the example of the Ethiopian eunuch, I don't think applies to today because I don't know too many people in Coquitlam who happen to be reading Isaiah and saying, I'm having a hard time understanding this. No, they're like, what's a church? Who's Jesus? And so I think. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> I've always been, uh, I've struggled with that. <laughs> Uh, so we'll have to edit this later on. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's right. In the, well, in the Catholic Church, Kevin, you're saying that, um, yeah, it's the, the um, it's the Roman Catholic, uh, in, what is the initiation of rites or the right? Yeah, I forget what it stands for, but it takes a year. Yeah. I, I do think in our culture with people coming into the church who really have zero background in understanding about God and who Jesus is or scriptures or anything, I think we should be a little slower before we're baptizing. And I do think that we're seeing that because the, the next step class is a, is a four week plus an interview. And plus, so there's a, a longer process that's, that's taking place. But I do think we should probably be slower to baptize because I've met a lot of people who've been baptized and like, why are you being baptized? Well, I just really love CA church. I'm like, okay, that's good. But this is a big deal for you to say my life. I'm going to follow Jesus. will probably cost you a job in the future. Are you, you're okay with that? Right. So those are things to think about. Anyhow, I'll have to edit that whole section. out. Uh, <laughs> no. All right. So um, let's, um, let's get to the last part. We're almost out of time. Uh, and that is a witness of the community. Um, I just want to say this. I, I've said this before, but the, the power of Christian community. And I always imagine this. I, I, in my mind's eye, I always go to this, this mental story, this, this image. So I think about in the Greco-Roman world, one third of the population would have been slaves, right? And slaves was not a... I mean, you could be a rich slave, you could be a powerful slave. Slave in the Greco-Roman world was not a class thing. You could be upper class and be a slave and you'd be lower class and be a slave. So it wasn't so much a class thing, but if you're a slave, you were, you had no rights, you, had, you were seen as, as, as uh, less than human. Um, and, and most of the slave's life was nasty, brutish and short. <laughs> If you lived in the if you were sent off to the silver mines, you're not going to live very long as a slave. And so life was not great. And there's a lot of sex slaves in the Greco-Roman world, in the Roman Empire. But I'm always, I always think about this. I always think if you're a young man or a young woman, because it didn't matter if you're male or female, and you were some older man's sex toy. And every day that's your life. Servicing some older man sexually. And they look at you. You don't even have a name. You're nothing. You're nothing. You're disposable. And you're nothing. And yet Sunday, Sunday morning, you enter into a community surrounded by people from all different backgrounds. And bread is brought out and wine. 
and someone takes the bread and they pass it to you and they call you by name, my sister, my brother, and they say your name. And they are highborn, you are a slave, but in Christ, you are brother and sister. Man, that, that would preach. No wonder. You, would you not want to shout the truth of Jesus from the, from the rooftops? This is what it's all about. This is where I become fully human. No wonder everybody, no, no wonder the church grew the way it did. So what is the role of the church today? Is the church today a community of belonging for broken people? Can the church be renewed? Well, I think look at how the church did community. You know, how you do community matters. And I think there's a lot that we can learn from the global south, the church in the global south, to see what community looks like. In, in the Western church today, in the Canadian church, whatever, we're always talking about community. And often you talk a lot about things that you really don't know a lot about. And the church today, well, we need to do community. Are we doing community? Are we doing life together? Because I think we really don't know how to do it. Where some churches, they do it in their sleep. I, I used to be part of um, Westwood Alliance Church. My two friends back there. West, oh, yeah, Westwood Alliance. I got a Westwood Alliance Church contingent. So that was in another Alliance Church. Um, Chinese, uh, primarily Chinese, but um, in our English congregation, it was pretty multicultural. In that congregation, you didn't have to say, let's do community. Brent and Minister, would you agree? You don't have to say, let's. Let's, let's go out and let's eat together. Let's do community. It just happened. I've always said, like, I, the potlucks we had at Westwood, I'm sorry, I've never seen a potluck here like that. Uh, the potlucks were just incredible. Alpha, the meals for Alpha were incredible. Um, because everybody just did, they knew community. Romanian church, I would think, would be the same. Yeah, it would just be very, you know community. Where here in the West, you know, in, in, in kind of more people growing up in the city and maybe uh, more Caucasian, we're like, well, let's do community. But we have no idea what that looks like. And I think there's a, we can learn a lot from other churches in terms of what community looks like. Um, because I, I've never experienced that, just the naturalness of community when I was at Westwood. Um, it's always... Yeah, it's, I think size affects things, is, um, but you and I, you've probably been in a small church that was also very cold and not very full of community. I've seen that. I think there's a cultural side of things that um, within Chinese context to do community and to do food and to, to spend. Like when I, would, uh, when I was at Westwood, I would say, who is new, right? We'd say, are there any newcomers here? We never do that in our church. Are there any newcomers? And so Susan, if you put up your hand, yeah, I'm a newcomer. Before you even put up your hand, somebody in the congregation would jump over a pew to come over and invite you out for lunch. While I'm still talking, I'm like, okay, do that afterwards, right? I remember that. Um, but I think size 
is an inhibitor. And, and the other thing is, is that one of the things about our church that, that I like is that you can be anonymous and kind of get a feel of things before you enter into more participation. And some people just want to kind of see. And I remember at Westwood, some person would just want to sit in the back. Well, they couldn't sit in the back. Everybody would be like, hey, come on out. What's your name? Right? Anyhow, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, and yeah, I would agree. I think it. I think it's a reflection of modern culture and a modern secular culture, especially in the West, where we live individual, atomized, private lives. Like, I used to pastor in a church where I would say, after the after the service, I'd like to come over to your place for coffee, and they'd be like, "Yeah, that would be great." I could never say that to a person today. In a, like if I said to somebody, I'm, I'm gonna, I'd like to come over to your place for supper or for coffee or something, people would be like, okay, this is weird. But it was, <laughs> but it was very natural in a different context. And so I think part of it is, is a cultural thing. Um, and I think it's, it's an influence of secularism and individualism and the breakdown of those social connections that used to see, right, you know, in North America, in Canada, um, but you don't see it as much anymore. And I think COVID has exacerbated that, that isolation. I think, I think that's part of it. What do you guys think? You're all isolated? No. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Peter says a Chinese uh, lady claimed that she could tell a person is a Christian by the way or he or she shared their belonging and food. They would give uh, their last bowl of food because they, they love you. Oh, interesting. Oh, and then somebody invited me over to their place for coffee. Oh, thank you. <laughs> That's actually what I was hinting at. Yeah. No. <laughs> so the early church, why did it grow? Well, it was an inclusive church, welcoming people from different backgrounds. The ground was level at the foot of the cross. Secondly, it was a church that responded with compassion and action to the catastrophes, disasters, and emergencies that the world was facing. Thirdly, the church was a place where people could belong. They found their identity in Jesus Christ. They found peace and stability in him. Um, and they found themselves in a messy, supernatural community that where people loved each other, called each other brother and sister, but were joined together by the cross because of Jesus Christ. And then they would turn around and they would serve the world because they had that foundation they had that connection they had the place and so the picture of the christian life they see here is this picture of, of being of, of of retreating and being built up in order to be sent out to reach the world and i think that's a beautiful picture of community that we as a church need to recover thanks for participating in this class if you've been engaging in classes online but you're not a part of a church community we would love to have you join us you can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.